$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus to expert advice is wrong. And we have demonstrable evidence for it. You know, the nation, since the obesity epidemic, there's an amazing chart showing obesity at a fairly low level in America. And then it turns sharply upwards the very year in 1980 when the U.S. government issues the very first dietary guidelines. And so here we had this dilemma, this, this fact. I spent almost a decade researching this subject. From the Hint offices in San Francisco, I'm Kara Golden. Every aspect of your metabolic health improves. Each week, we're talking to innovators and game changers who think outside the box and tackle problems that few address. What does it really take to be unstoppable? Let's find out. I'm so excited to have investigative journalist Nina Teicholtz with us here. I couldn't wait to have her on the show to talk about her New York Times bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. We learn about fat and really our definition of fat and our fears of fat. She documents how the past 60 years of low-fat nutrition advice has amounted to a vast, uncontrolled experiment on the entire population with, unfortunately, disastrous consequences to many people's health. The Big Fat Surprise was also the first mainstream publication to make the full argument for why saturated fats, the kind found in dairy, meat, and eggs, are not bad for health. The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Mother Jones, Library Journal, and Kirkus Reviews named it as one of the best books out there. On today's show, we dive into her research. You won't want to miss this. So Nina, so excited to have you here this morning. Really, really appreciate your time. And I'm a huge fan, and I read your book a little over a year ago and, and was really, really excited to really hear your perspective on fats. And I was exceptionally excited because I'm a big believer in this as well, that not all fats are created equal. And sometimes when you're really pushing to thinking that you're doing the right thing by doing diet fats, it's probably wrong. And so I was really, really excited to see your book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and cheese belong in a healthy diet. And yeah, so I just want to ask you a bunch of questions, not a few questions, because I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, but just 
first of all, I'd just love to sort of hear why you decided to write this book. I mean, what was sort of the impetus to actually go out and, and write it? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here. And it's a good question why I spent um, really almost a decade researching this subject. It did not start out as a crazy obsessive project. I was supposed to write a book on trans fats because I had written an investigative piece for on that subject for Gourmet Magazine. And that kind of broke the story open in the early 2000s on trans fats. And I got a book contract to write about that. But as I was researching this subject of fat, you know, good fat, bad fat, how much fat, non-fat, you know, which is what Americans have pretty much obsessed about most in their diet over the last um, 50 years, I realized there was just this much bigger story about how we had seemingly got it, gotten it wrong on all fats. You know, the fats we thought were bad were actually good. The fats we thought were good were bad. I mean, it was such a, it was just this incredible um, discovery. Um, so it really took a enormously long time to get to the bottom of all that. You know, you have to read so much science and really understand the science and the politics because it turns out to be more of a story about politics even than science. So you argue that cutting back on fat, this notion of the low-fat diet, is it's hailed as a healthy diet, but that's false. What's actually wrong when you cut out the fat, the good fat, out of your diet? When you go on a low-fat diet, you there are only three macronutrients to eat in food. There's fat, protein, and carbohydrates. So if you cut fat, which is what Americans were told to do, and they started doing in early 1960s, really, as they were told to do that in order to avoid getting a heart attack. Originally, it was like to avoid getting a heart attack. And then it was, well, so fat has more calories per gram than carbohydrates or protein. So you might as well just cut back on, back on fat to avoid all the calories. So it was an obesity argument. And so in 1965, Americans were eating about 43% of their calories is fat. And then we were told to go on diets that were anywhere between 25 and 35% in fat. That was the low fat diet. And Americans did that. But what the consequence was, is that if you cut back on fat, people tend to then ramp up carbohydrate consumption. So, and many people remember the food pyramid, you know, we were told to do that. We were told that big bottom slab of the food pyramid is all carbohydrates, grains, pasta, we were told to eat a lot more of those. So instead of having, you know, beef stew for dinner or chicken, you're told to have, you know, grains like rice, pasta, and beans, and which is also carbohydrates. And ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And, and vegetables, which are good for you, but a lot of them are pretty starchy and full of carbohydrates. And altogether, we increased our carbohydrate consumption um, since 1970 by more than 30%. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, 
carbohydrates, it turns out um, there's a large and growing body of science that shows that carbohydrates turn out to be uniquely fattening. And it's not, I mean, definitely sugar is seems to, to be like the super fuel and fattening people, but really just an excess of carbohydrates altogether. Even too much rice, even too much whole grain pasta or whatever you're having is too, it, it tends to, to make people obese and then diabetic. And it does that because it, anytime you eat carbohydrates, it becomes a glucose in your bloodstream. Glucose triggers the release of insulin. Insulin is like the king of all hormones for fat deposition. It socks away fat. And then you've also got fructose, which is the other part of sugars. Um, and fructose is, goes directly and is metabolized by the liver and leads to um, too much fructose, leads to fatty liver disease. So like we just started, we started eating a lot more glucose and fructose in the last 30 years. And there's quite a lot of science to show that that is what provoked the obesity and diabetes epidemics. I 100% agree. So, so the politics, you touched on this at the beginning of the call, but the politics around this, I, I have very strong opinions as I've dug into uh, to lots of initiatives around a lot of what you're talking about, too, particularly around sugar and, and the sweeteners and kind of that, the politics around that. But I, I'm so curious what your opinion is around when I, look, when I look at things like meat and cheese and, you know, dairy and poultry, I think of those industries as having, you know, big lobbyists, right? Do you think that the grain industry is, is just filled with you know, more power? I mean, how did we get this way? Like, how did it, how did it get to be, how did they get noisier? How did that end up getting, you know, more juice in, in terms of people wanting and thinking that that was the better thing? Well, this is a, a big question you're asking, which is how did our nutrition science get it so wrong, right? How do we come, and it's not just telling people to eat a low-fat diet, but the other part of it is telling people to, to, to cons- instead of saturated fats, which are the kind of fats found in, in animal foods and in, in palm oil and coconut oil, instead of those fats to start consuming what are vegetable oils, basically, which are called polyunsaturated fats. So we were told to make this huge shift in the type of fat that we ate, right? That's the other part of my book, which is actually that was also wrong to tell us to stop eating the fats and all those natural foods like in, in, in meat and, and cheese. Those are natural fats. And it turns out that they do not cause heart disease. And it turns out that they are probably protective against heart disease. And, you know, much of the science was just manipulated. So how did we get it so wrong? That's a big question. And the answer is not a simple one, but I can kind of tick off for you like the main factors. Yes, industry played a role in it. Big soy, big grain, but also the vegetable oil companies, Monsanto, ADM, Bungie, Cargill, Unilever. I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world. And they were really in there from the very beginning, funding research, They contributed a lot of money to the studies that were done. All the early studies on vegetable oils were funded by some of these companies. Some of these companies even, for one, they were very close to the National Institutes of Health. In one study, they actually, like, there was a vegetable oil 
employee working on the study. They provided all the foods for them. They've always been very powerful in this debate around in nutrition science, and they remain so. They are still very, they give a lot of money to Harvard. Harvard scientists work very closely with them. Tough scientists work very closely with them. And so they're still very much in the mix. I know we've heard a lot about the sugar industry kind of trying to, in, I mean, you have to understand all industries try to manipulate science. <laughs> there's like, there's, there's, there's no, like, there's, all industries are trying to do the same thing. And some of them, um, there are legitimate reasons. Like they, you know, they feel like, okay, the NIH is not going to fund every study that needs to be funded. And where's that money going to come from? So they fund the study. And it isn't necessarily to be manipulative. And the scientists who take the money aren't necessarily being bought off by that money. But I can tell you from the research that I did, which I remember my first, for the first two years of writing, I was, I thought I was writing a book on trans fat. So I did nothing but talk to hundreds of vegetable oil executives. And it became very clear to me how much they did steer nutrition science going back to really to the 40s. So that's one factor, which is industry has influenced science. But another factor, and I think it's equally big, equally important, is to say the scientists themselves became completely, utterly enamored with their own hypothesis, which was called the diet heart hypothesis that saturated fats and cholesterol cause heart disease. And that goes back to the, uh, it was a hypothesis that sort of came to the fore in the 1950s when heart disease had come from pretty much out of nowhere to becoming the nation's number one killer, the state of panic in the country about what caused heart disease. And in that moment, in a scientist named Ansel Keys, who sort of filled this void and said, look, it's saturated fat and cholesterol that cause heart disease. He was this very persuasive, uh, sort of aggressive scientist. And he his hypothesis became ascendant and adopted, adopted by the National Institutes of Health, adopted by the American Heart Association. So all these large institutions adopted this hypothesis and generations of scientists fervently believed this to be true. And so what happened was that even as they tested this hypothesis in clinical trials and the clinical trials could not confirm the hypothesis. They would, they test thousands and thousands and thousands of people on this idea. They took out the saturated fat out of their diet, took out the cholesterol, replaced it with vegetable oils. At the end of those experiments, they could not see any benefit for heart disease. And yet those studies, some of them weren't published. Some of them were, you know, they were ignored. They, <laughs> one of them, I, you know, I found in a, in an NIH basement had never been published. I mean, really an amazing story of kind of denying the science, cherry picking the science because the scientists themselves were so in love with their own idea about what causes heart disease. And, you know, that is actually still true because it's still widely believed that saturated fat causes heart disease. And if you'll let me permit me to go on for one more minute. I no, 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 no. I love this. We're, yeah, we love it. No, it's very interesting. Well, just it is complicated. As I, so I sort of, I know I warned you at the outset, but when a hypothesis such as this one becomes institutionalized, which is to say it's adopted by large institutions, 
American Heart Association, National Institute of Health, but also then with the start of the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, the entire federal government adopts this hypothesis, right? Starts telling Americans, avoid saturated fat and cholesterol. And at that point, it becomes almost impossible to change the science because, you know, institutional science is really almost like an oxymoron, right? What science, what good science needs is to constantly question itself, to be flexible, nimble, and able to change when there are new observations. And that is the very opposite of what is demanded by institutions. Institutions need constancy, consistency. They need to be not flip-flopping on their publics. They need to not, you know, they need to kind of stay the course. And so when it became clear that, you know, when this idea became adopted by all these enormous government, you know, official institutions, you know, now it's every government in the, we exported this idea to every government in the world and the WHO. So then it, it becomes almost impossible to, to reverse out of this thoroughly entrenched idea, which, which now has you know, entire bureaucracies surrounding it. So that's the situation that we're in today. <laughs> and yeah. And how do you, like in a perfect world, I mean, how do you reset the standards, right? I've been very close to this as well, looking at things like the American Heart Association and some of the standards that they've adopted based on, you know, the the government guidelines that you're talking about as well. And I just, I mean, I look at all of it and just say, wow, it's so confusing to the average consumer that's just trying to do the right thing, right? They're just trying to live a healthy lifestyle. They look for these labels, they look for, you know, guidelines, and yet, you know, when you actually tell them that it might not be correct, that, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy around it. I mean, people from all walks of life, all incomes, all education, they're, they're just surprised, right? So I don't know how, how do we actually, you know, reset the standards and redo it? I mean, if, if you were running that, what would, what would you say would be the, the way to do it? Well, first of all, I just have to double down on your expression of sympathy to the poor, confused, average consumer of this information, because it's it's incredibly hard to know. I mean, you know, why believe me, right, over your cardiologist? I mean, and, you know, the reality is I study this science for more than a decade now and, you know, know every single study and and. And, and most cardiologists get maybe a day of nutrition training at most and in their medical school, but, you know, they're, they're still considered the experts and I'm not. And I, you know, and, and that's fair. I mean, we should be able to trust our experts. I would be happier living in a world where I could trust our expert advice, but this situation, and it's not the only one like this, but where the expert advice is wrong. And we have demonstrable evidence for it. You know, the nation, since the obesity epidemic, there's an amazing chart showing obesity being at a fairly low level in America. And then it turns sharply upwards the very year in 1980, when the U.S. government issues the very first dietary guidelines, because that's when the whole food supply changes, right? We go from beef to regular beef to lean beef, low-fat dairy, and those guidelines affect what is told, you know, the advice that is dispensed in every doctor's 
this, every hospital, every nurse, every nutritionist, every dietitian, they all download their advice from the dietary guidelines. Every school, every, you know, everything changed it. They're so powerful. So if I were to map out how to change this, I think that you would need to get to the dietary guidelines because it really is this top-down system. You know, those guidelines are just downloaded to every professional association and medical association and everything. You know, they determine military rations, right? Oh, our military is obese. They determine school lunches. Oh, our children are getting obese. You know, they determine so much. So, I mean, while I think that there has to be some kind of huge educational campaign to try to re-educate or uneducate Americans out of half a century of, of wrong dietary advice, I think you also really have to change that policy so that it's we're no longer getting this constant flow down of information that's just incorrect. You know, we're being told to eat more and more, well, they call it a plant-based diet now, but you know, that's grains. You're talking a high grain, high carbohydrate diet. I, and I think, you know, the industry's, you know, talking about the early eighties too, I've read some information on this too, how the different industries that were affected by, you know, some of the challenges to the, you know, dairy industry, as well as the meat industry, just to survive ended up you know, unfortunately having to do some things to their, you know, adding hormones and, and lots of other things to their meats too. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's actually challenging for consumers too, to find the right, you know, milk to buy the right meats to buy, but you know, it's a lot different than it was even, you know, what, 40 years ago. So over the last, I mean, you talked about how it's changed over the last 60 years, but in particularly the last 40 years, I've just seen that it's just become harder and harder. So to actually get the the quality in, in these foods, but I think that that's, but that a lot of it is due to, you know, these industries really having to survive. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with that. You know, we, we live, you know, we're a nation, you know, we're, we're just, part of that is the issue of having to face hundreds of millions of people, you know, how do you do that? And also give every cow their own pastor and, you know, like, how do you do that? And so there are questions of, I mean, it's like any other industry trying to create massive amounts of of a product for, you know, a nation that is just growing exponentially right year by year. So, um, but part of it has to do with, um, some of the weird unintended consequences that came about by, you know, you tell like what happened in the milk industry, for instance. So consumption of, so since 1970, consumption of whole milk, regular milk, the kind of that comes out of a cow is down by almost 80%. It's a, just a crash of the whole milk market because everybody was told to to drink low fat or non-fat milk instead, right? I remember that transition in my household where we Absolutely. went from Yep. And and actually my story is is perfectly emblematic of of what went on for all you know Americans everywhere, which is that we switched from getting whole milk in a bottle, which was delicious, to like low fat milk when we went through our own little nutrition transition in the 70s and and we started drinking low fat milk, which is tasteless. I mean, it's just like it's not very good. So then I decided the only kind of milk that I would drink is chocolate milk because it tastes better. So I drank chocolate milk, which is, you know, 
I don't know why my mother <laughs> allowed you to do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's full of sugar. So, and that's what we're seeing. So flavored milks, you know, all the, the, the kind of milk that has replaced whole milk is this sweet flavored milk, because when you take the fat out of food, this is true in many different kinds of foods and fat is what provides flavor, texture, substance. And so in, in order to replace that taste, you often just have to replace it with sugar or some, what they call in the industry, a kind of fat replacer, which is almost always carbohydrate based. So low fat foods are almost always higher in sugar. A hundred percent. And now gluten-free and all the rest of these other industries as well. So they're filled, you know, you trade off in those categories, you know, for, in that case, the wheat, the gluten, but then you're ending up putting in more and more sugar. So, but that's another book, (laughs) but that's, yeah. So when you look at the dietary fat and people are listening to you, what are the key things that you think that, you know, you absolutely need to cut back on these certain types of food? Well, you know, this is, so one thing I just want to say is that one of the, one of the, profound things to realize about understanding nutrition is that there's no one right diet for all people, right? And that people who are what I would call metabolically healthy, like, and you know, we all know what those people are like. Those are like the 19 year old boys who can eat anything and they, you know, they, and they don't get, they don't gain weight. There are some people who are just they're healthy. Their, their metabolisms are healthy. They can eat a lot of carbs and process them and they, and they, they don't see any ill effect. I'm not saying they should still, I still think a high carb diet is bad for anybody for many reasons, but I'm just saying those people can tolerate more carbohydrates. If you're somebody who is obese, diabetic, pre-diabetic, or has heart disease, or, I mean, you know, there are other kinds of conditions that seem to be related to excessive carbohydrate consumption. Alzheimer's is one, but the evidence is not quite as firm there, but, but definitely for obesity, diabetes, heart disease, then you really need to cut back on carbohydrates more significantly. And, and you replace it not with protein, protein stays pretty much constant, but you replace it with fat. So, you know, you need, so people should stay away from, um, especially those, you know, refined carbohydrates. Um, but really it's just, if you have a metabolic disease or you're metabolically unhealthy, you just need to cut back on carbohydrates altogether. And you know, that even means things that you can't seem like healthy foods, but like you really just can't eat too many of them. Like you know, people, like fruit, fruit is really high in sugar, too much fruit, uh, you know, will bust the limit for some people on, on, on sugars, you know, this juicing of fruit can really can, you know, is, can be like having a chocolate bar. I mean, uh, in terms of the way your body, you know, it affects your body. So, so it's really not like one food, you know, it's, it's just saying that you have, that people have to be cognizant of the amount of carbohydrates they're taking in if they're, you know, if they're struggling with these conditions and, you know, there's something called a ketogenic diet, which is people who really go way low on carbohydrates and very high in fat. I'm talking like 75% of their calories is fat. And, and that has extraordinary results for people who are really obese, you know, stubborn obesity, people with diabetes, people with diabetes have been able to, to, to completely reverse out of their diabetes diagnoses with these diets. That's data from a clinical trial that's underway, been going on for a year now, 
where nearly 60% of the people after a year completely reverse their diabetes. And that is a study that has over 400 people enrolled in it, all diabetic. And at the end of a year, their one-year results are that something like 89% had greatly reduced their insulin medication or gotten off it altogether. And almost 60% had completely reversed their diabetes diagnosis as defined by their level of H1AC. So that's amazing. I mean, those are stunning results. Well, I mean, they're especially stunning because the standard of care in right now is that diabetes is progressive chronic disease that can only be managed. And it's, it's just like a death sentence. You know, it just, you have, there's no way to reverse it according to the American Diabetes Association, which is supposed to be on the cutting edge of this research. There's a high correlation from what we've heard from some other people that we've interviewed too around not just sugar and, and sort of things like juice and, and carbohydrates, what they turn into, but also these diet sweeteners that are being encouraged to be consumed in our diet too, which is a whole other piece of it too. But it's, it, it, I'd be really interested to see um, that because I know, you know, type two diabetes, when I started my company hint was about 2% of the population and the, the center for disease control wow. is now saying, and that was, you know, almost 13 years ago now, but now the center for disease control, the latest statistics are over 40% have type two diabetes or prediabetes. It's not clear because, you know, a lot of people don't even know. I think that the correlation of you know, everything that you're talking about around carbohydrates and these juicing diets and also these diet sweeteners, I think, are a huge contributor to it, too. And so just in terms of studying and what are some of the other things that you're seeing today? I mean, you're you're obviously in, in the research arena and we're super interested in health. And I can only imagine when this book came out, I mean, did you have you know, to deal with a lot of the naysayers out there and, and kind of what did that end up sort of leading you to kind of think about, you know, I've got to do some deeper research into some other factors around nutrition and diet. And so just overall, what's next? My book and me personally have been right the center of some storm of controversy because the main thesis of my book is that saturated fats are not bad for health and saturated, the caps on saturated fat, it turns, I mean, I was really just interested in, in saturated fat, but it turns out that the caps on saturated fat are what limits consumption of meat. The reason people don't eat a lot of meat, especially red meat, and is that they fear it's high in saturated fat. Although I want to say, you know, all foods are a mixture of fat. So like, your average porterhouse steak, only a third of the fat in that steak is saturated. And then and another third is the kind of fat that you get in olive oil. So it's not like, you know, meat is like 100% saturated fat. Everything is a mixture. And you're not encouraging people to go out and buy potato chips. I mean, that's not really what we're... No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> no potato chips are made from polyunsaturated vegetable oils, which, I, which have been shown in clinical trials to cause cause cancer. So I definitely would not be eating polyunsaturated fats. And I definitely think that, you know, saturated animal fats are healthier, but that is of course very controversial and, and probably the most active group of in the food 
world are the vegan vegetarian folks who many of them are motivated by animal welfare concerns or environmental concerns. I mean, all of which I understand and completely sympathize with, but I think that, but they use, then they sort of, they tread into the diet world to try to say, well, this diet is, you know, a a diet with meat or cheese or butter is unhealthy. And, you know, they're very, very well organized and very active. And so they've really gone after me in my book. They really don't like it because if saturated fats are okay, then there's no reason that people should not eat. I mean, as I said, that's been the rate limiting factor on people's consumption of, of meat and dairy. There's really no reason that those foods should be limited. I mean, there are a lot of good reasons to eat those foods. They're very, very high in many of the essential nutrients that we need and we can't get from plant-based foods. So there has been a storm of, of controversy around this whole idea. And, you know, I think now, I mean, in the year, it's my book was published and in a couple of years since then, I mean, the science, there've been more and more scientists looking at the same science that I did and looking at all the clinical trials on saturated fat, looking at the whole body of evidence on saturated fat and coming to the same conclusion. So in fact, now there's like over a dozen serious scientific papers by independent researchers all over the world saying, actually, saturated fats do not cause heart disease. We got that wrong. I mean, papers from really in countries all over the world now. And so there's a lot of controversy going on about this. You know, I continue to write articles about this and op-eds about this. I'm interested in work in Washington to try to actually change the dietary guidelines so that they are evidence-based. You know, they're actually based on good, rigorous clinical trial evidence, which they are not currently. I've written about that for an article in the British Medical Journal. So I just continue to write about all of this and, and, you know, try to be active. I really, you know, again, I really feel passionate that we need policy that is evidence-based on this subject so that people can trust it and get healthy again. You know, I think, I think that's just absolutely crucial for the health of the country. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like with this new administration, you're getting, you know, we've had changes in who's actually running a lot of these groups. Do you feel like you've been able to make headway and actually, you know, potentially getting some uh, listening around that? Or are you just in the beginning of those conversations? You know, I think there is interest in this kind of change, but there's so much uncertainty about this administration that (laughs) it's hard to know at this point what will happen. But I, you know, it's definitely, I mean, just going back to the politics of this, I mean, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, right? Everybody should want the better health of the country and everybody should want the dietary guidelines to be able to better fight obesity and diabetes, right? That shouldn't be a red state, blue state divide or of any kind. But the reality is that the Obama administration, particularly Michelle Obama's, you know, she was pushing for lower fat milk and non-fat milk in the schools. And she was pushing for low salt in all the, you know, lunches, school lunches. None of that was based on good scientific evidence. So unfortunately her, even though I think she obviously meant well, that was not, you know, helpful advice. So now it's kind of, you know, now if there were, so there's probably very few Democrats who would want to undo that legacy that she, that she gave to nutrition. Um, 
and I should say, you know, like I'm from Berkeley, California, so I'm clearly, you know, not a Trump supporter, but I think that it is, it probably, there probably is more opportunity in a Republican administration to make some headway on, on getting some better science behind the guidelines. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Ironically. I, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's challenging. I mean, as somebody said to me, I, I've just become so cynical, you know, over the years. And I, you know, came at this, came out my company Hint from a, you know, purely consumer perspective on wanting to launch a product that didn't have sweeteners in it because I had found that I was drinking diet soda and had gained all this weight and, you know, was just really surprised when I cut out the diet soda that I dropped in a span of six months over 50 pounds just by getting rid of diet sweeteners. And when I started to really look at the industry as a whole and, you know, really actually start to get hint out into the industry too on store shelves and in schools. I just found like shocking, shocking things that were allowed to go on. For example, um, the milk industry actually defined for the public school system the fact that carbonated water could not be sold in schools. Someone gave them the role to actually write the document that said this is what schools will be allowed to do. And so I think that they got their their white milk cut out of, of the schools and they inserted chocolate milk. And really they were looking at, well, we don't want soda to go into schools, so we'll say anything with carbonation in it. And the challenge is, is that, you know, later on, this thing called carbonated water came out. And so carbonated water, getting that undone in these school contracts has just been unbelievable. And and when I finally uh, went and, and tried to dig in and get to the bottom of who actually wrote this, I was just absolutely shocked to hear that the dairy industry was the one that did this. And, you know, we worked pretty closely with Michelle Obama on the Drink Up initiative. And, uh, you know, I mean, to to actually undo things once they're actually rolled out is just, um, it's really hard. I can't say that it's, that it can't be undone. But the fact that, you know, the, the dairy industry, you know, ultimately, a huge set of lobbyists were really controlling um, you know, what was going into our kids' school system. And, of course, they were, you know, they don't really care about carbonated water. They'd obviously love to sell more milk products, but what they were really trying to do was keep the soda out. And so, you know, I started to, I mean, that was probably, that was 12 years ago. And then I, you know, if since then, you know, run into things like, uh the whole uh, soda tax, and although we're not involved in that because we don't have, you know, sugar or diet sweeteners as part of our initiative, I've looked at, you know, a lot of the funding that goes into the soda tax across the country is not just the Cokes and the Pepsis of the world, but it's also, you know, the Monsantos and the, you know, sweetener industries. And I've also seen some pharmaceutical companies that, by the way, are also funding type 2 diabetes. And um, so, you know, it's just, I, I mean, it's, it's ironic and it's frightening. 
And I always, you know, when I hear that there's some big initiative that's been put into place, I, I just have learned to, you know, dig a little deeper to really understand, you know, who's behind this. And so, you know, while I think that the guidelines, um, I, I absolutely agree with you that these guidelines should be changed. I, I've just been really surprised. Like, you know, at surface level, I, I used to think, oh, well, you know, it, it's as simple as, um, you know, are the are the grain lobbyists stronger than the, you know, meat and dairy lobbyists? And is that why this, this started taking off? But then, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, like the stuff that they're funding because they want to sell more drugs for those diseases are also, you know, it's, it's happening and it's, it's really, really, you know, sad. And then unfortunately a lot of these, you know, large pharmaceutical companies and people on their boards are also funding a lot of government officials too. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really kind of a mess. It's, it's sad because I think ultimately the consumer loses in this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, if you want the fast track to cynicism, <laughs> just study the the food and nutrition. Yeah, industry. no, start a beverage, there's, there's, start a beverage company. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> and that's you know, the sad thing is you could replicate that in any area of the food industry. And, and, 100%. You know, and, and I can tell you that it's just so it's, it is, it is everywhere you look and it is so profound. There's, I mean, you, you know, when I started studying the science and there was, you know, Harvard scientists, who were on the take from vegetable oil companies, publishing papers about vegetable oils being, you know, good for health. And then, I mean, there's there's a scientist, not a scientist, but sort of a, you know, somebody attached to Yale and he publishes all the, he just, he, you, you're just, there's just sort of like names for rent or for hire. A hundred percent. And yet they're also on all the TV shows and they're quoted by all the journalists. They're on all these websites, you know, and who are the websites funded by these health websites are all funded by pharmaceutical companies. And even the, the medical websites with medical advice for doctors are funded by pharmaceutical companies. So like there's kind of, there's no safe space really. That's truly just about good science in the interest of the public health, even the main group in Washington that is supposed to represent the public interest called Center for Science and the Public Interest. Who are they funded by? They're funded by a bunch of, well, I mean, I know this sounds crazy to many people, but there is such a thing as big fruit and big vegetables, you know, and their industries. I, I their am with you. Yeah. Too, and they want their agenda promoted. So there really just is no, there's no space where it's, it's really just purely in the public interest. And so um, that's why, in fact, what I, when, what I'm doing in BC is this group called the Nutrition Coalition, which is, receives no industry support. I myself receive no industry support, and we are purely about good, rigorous science, policy based on rigorous science, purely in the public interest. You know, we are raising money from individuals who, you know, in fact, most of them are former diabetics who figured out that everything the government told them was wrong and was making them sick and were so grateful for having recovered their health that they're willing to fund our efforts so that other people can have the same information, you know, and ultimately I think that's where change will come from, from the, the vast groundswell of people who understand that official advice is, is making them sick and fat and that that must stop. 
you know, it just must stop. I totally agree. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, Nina, thank you again. The big fat surprise. Uh, where's the best place to purchase this? You know, it's available on at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you can, on my website. You, if you go to my website, there's also an independent bookstore that I particularly affiliated with that will send you a signed copy if you want. So just the regular places. Love it. Okay. Well, thanks again. And it was so nice chatting with you. And I really applaud your efforts. And I love that you're pushing forward. And, and uh, hopefully, maybe you and I will see each other in Washington at some point pushing on these big people to change for the consumer. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to that too. Thanks so much, Nina. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You can learn about Nina Teicholtz and her book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet on TheBigFatSurprise.com. Thanks so much for listening to Unstoppable. If you like what you heard, please help spread the word and leave us a review. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Please talk to me at KaraGolden.com. Until next time, be unstoppable. Addictive nature of modern food. is important. Obesity and diabetes epidemic. <laughs> ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.